Thank you, Michelle. That's a beautiful song with a great message, which goes right along with our passage. So if you have a copy of God's Word, look with me in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 32. Look at Jeremiah, chapter 32. Last week, we attended a church in Austin that was two hours long, and the pastor preached for one hour. It opened up new worlds for me. Lock the doors now. Okay. <laughs> Book of Jeremiah, chapter 32. We're studying the life of Jeremiah this summer. And again, I've said this before, this is a difficult book. Because here you have the story of a prophet who is preaching a message no one wants to hear. He's preaching destruction. He is saying, if you do not repent, the people of the north, the Babylonians, are going to come. And they're going to destroy Judah and Jerusalem and the temple. And for years, for decades, Jeremiah is preaching that message and no one's listening. And Jeremiah goes through a lot of suffering. We looked at it a few weeks ago when they put him in stocks in the town. And he's being faithful to God's word, telling them this, this message. Again, this difficult book because this book is not in chronological order. Now, today's passage, we know exactly when it takes place because he tells us. And so it's kind of a hard book to understand. But here's the gist. That is, God told Jeremiah to give a message. The people needed to repent or judgment is coming. We're going to look at the whole chapter, but I want us to just begin with verse 1 and a few verses. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. Now at that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard, which was in the house of the king of Judah, because Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, saying, Why do you prophesy, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, would not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but he will surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will speak with him face to face and see him eye to eye, and he will take Zedekiah to Babylon, and he will be there until I visit him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Chaldeans, you will not succeed. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is coming to you, saying, Buy for yourself my field, which is in Anathoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the guard, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field, please, that is at Anathoth, which is in the land of Benjamin, for you have the right of possession, and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. And then I knew that this was a word from the Lord. I bought the field which is at Anathoth from Hanamel, my uncle's son, and I weighed out silver for him, 17 shekels of silver. Look down at verse 16. And after I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, then I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arms. Nothing is too difficult for you. Now jump down to verse 27 as God is now talking. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Let's pray. Our Father, today as we take this passage, Father, as we take this text, we ask you to help us to understand it. But also, Father, help us to understand the meaning of it for us. 
Help us, Father, that we will be obedient to you, understanding, Father, that you are able. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On November 12, 1660, John Bunyan, who later went on to write The Pilgrim's Progress, was arrested and thrown into jail because he preached the gospel. He stayed in jail for seven weeks before he met the judge. The judge sentenced him for three months longer in jail with this provision that when he got out of jail, he would no longer preach the gospel. And if he did preach the gospel, he would be exiled out of the country. And if he ever came back, he would be put to death. John Bunyan responds, is classic. This is what he said to the judge. If I were out of prison today, I would preach the gospel again tomorrow by the help of God. And they threw him in jail, and he stayed in jail for 12 years because he was going to preach the gospel. You know, sometimes I think we forget there is a price to following Christ. This morning, we find another man of God in prison. His name is Jeremiah. I mean, this is an amazing story. Think about this. This man has been preaching for 35 years of repentance. 35 years, judgment is coming, and the people don't repent. I mean, he's been preaching for 35 years of repentance, and not only did they not repent, they became more immoral, worshiping false gods. He spent 35 years preaching repentance, and the people were not only not listening to him, they were mad at him because of his message. And so we know when this took place, this took place in 589 B.C., Jeremiah is 57 years of age, the Babylonian army is surrounding Jerusalem. And they're going to enter eventually because in that day, that's what you did. If you had a great army, you would surround the city and you would keep all the food from going in and the people would starve to death. And eventually someone was going to open the gate. And all the Babylonian army had to do was wait. And so now the our army is surrounding Jerusalem. And so what did they do? What is their response? They take Jeremiah and they throw him in jail. It's your fault. You've been saying this was going to happen, now it's happening. You've been talking about this army coming, and now they're here. And not only that, Jeremiah, you're telling us that we need to surrender because we're not going to win. And if we surrender, more people won't die. And so they throw him in jail. And while he's in jail, God does something that makes absolutely no sense. God tells Jeremiah, I want you to buy some land. And while Jeremiah is thinking about that, his uncle sends his son to offer Jeremiah some land. The land is in Anathoth, about three miles outside of Jerusalem, and the Babylonian army is right there. Hey, Jeremiah, we're trying to sell some land. No one's going to buy this land How about you? It's about three miles outside of Jerusalem. It's a nice view of the Babylonian army. Suppose a real estate agent gave you a call and said, I have some choice property in the mountains, luxury hotel there. It's worth about $20 million. I'll give it to you for $20,000. Oh, by the way, one small detail is in eastern Ukraine. You know, buying property in a war zone is a high-risk investment. Buying a piece of property that is already under enemy control doesn't make any sense. 
And that's exactly what God told Jeremiah to do. While you're in jail, you're going to buy some property that's going to be worthless short term. And Jeremiah does it. Jeremiah buys the property. Can you imagine what the people are thinking? This guy's lost it. I mean, he bought some land and we're about to be overthrown. He bought some land that is worthless. They looked at Jeremiah as if he is crazy. But isn't that our problem sometimes? We know exactly what God wants us to do, but we're afraid to do it because to the world or to our family or to our friends, we're going to look crazy. You go back to the scripture, you notice how many times God will tell people to do something that made no sense whatsoever. Noah, I want you to build a boat in the desert. Moses, I want you to uh, raise the stick in your hand so the people can cross over the, the Red Sea. Moses, I want you to strike a rock and water is going to come out from it. People of Israel, I want you to look up at a bronze serpent. And if you look at the bronze serpent, even though you've been bitten by a poisonous snake, you won't die. The army, I want you to walk around Jericho and blow some trumpets and you'll win the battle. Naaman, I want you to go dip yourself seven times in the dirty water of the Jordan and you'll be healed. David, I want you to go fight the Goliath, that man of war. And by the way, just take a slingshot. None of this makes sense. But each time God said it and God commanded it and it looked foolish to the world and they did it. And God does the same thing today. There are many things God will tell us to do that makes no sense and we look foolish to the world. God says you forgive no matter what. God says you give 10% of your income to the church. God tells us to be last. God tells us to think of others before ourselves. God tells us to trust a book written 2,000 years ago and trust it, every word of it. Does that make any sense? No. God will tell us to do things that will make no sense, but we have to be obedient. I mean, why would Jeremiah do this? Why would Jeremiah go buy some land that he's never going to enjoy? Why would Jeremiah do this? Because Jeremiah does something all the great men and women of God will do throughout the scriptures, really throughout history. Jeremiah takes the long view. Jeremiah takes the long view. Go back and read the scriptures. You look at the prophets and teachers and leaders and people of faith. Whenever God told them to do something, they were not looking at the immediate response. They were looking at the long view. Moses was obedient, but he never entered the promised land. Moses was faithful because he had the long view. I'm going to get the people there. Abraham, he didn't know what was going on. He was an old man by the time they have a child. But he was looking at the long view that one day a great nation would come from this. David raising money for the temple. David would never see that temple built. But he raised money because he took the long view. Joseph following the will of God. He never saw Jesus in the ministry. But he was thinking about the next generation. Over and over, we see these men and women of God taking the long view. And by the way, listen, if you take the long view, if you find people that take the long view, it's hard for them to be stopped. I think of Walt Disney. Walt Disney had a dream. 
He wanted to build an amusement park in Florida bigger than Disneyland. He thought it out. He planned it out. At the press conference, when he was talking about this dream, he said the first phase would be approximately $100 million, maybe a little more. By the way, the first phase cost $400 million. A year later, Walt Disney died. December 15th, 1966, he died. Wall Street said that's the end of the dream. Wall Street said there will never be that amusement park built there. But Walt's brother, Roy, said, I'm going to take his dream, and I'm going to make sure it's done. He took the dream of Walt Disney. And even though people kept trying to change the dream, they kept trying to change the plan, Roy refused because the day before Walt died, he was telling Roy again the plan, what should go here, what should go there, and the vision that he had. And on October 1st, 1971, five years after Walt Disney died, they had the grand opening. And during that dedication service, a reporter turned to Mrs. Walt Disney and said, isn't it a shame that Walt didn't live to see this? And she said, oh, he did see it. That's why it's here. What a shame that Christians cannot take the long view of what God has given to them. See, we have a tendency, we only think about ourselves. We have a tendency, what about me? We have a tendency, what about my comfort? But God says, I want you to think of others. Our temptation, we want to see the results now. We want to see things immediately. But God's dreams, God's vision is an investment. Great leaders of Scripture always took the long view. And Jeremiah is going to make this investment. It's going to be a symbolic gesture. But he's going to show the people he trusted God. There's a Swedish island called Zinzo. It has a mysterious forest of oak trees. Now, here's why it's mysterious. Oak trees don't grow there. But there's a forest of oak trees. No one even knows how it got there until 1980. 1980, the Swedish Navy received word from the forestry department saying, your lumber is ready. And they said, what are you talking about? What lumber? We never requested lumber. So they began to do research, and they found out in 1829, the Swedish parliament recognized that it takes oak trees 150 years to mature, and they said there will be a shortage of lumber for our ships. So they ordered the planting of 20,000 oak trees on that island to protect the Navy in the long run. That's the long view. Many times God will ask us to do something, and we need to take the long view. Not about what we'll see today, but what we'll see tomorrow. That's the mature Christian. The mature Christian will say, I'm going to follow God for the next generation, for the next group. We want to help people and see the results immediately. Sometimes that doesn't happen. But after Jeremiah prays, after he does this, he, he prays. And this chapter is a prayer of Jeremiah. And he makes this incredible statement that, God, you're able. That, God, nothing's too difficult for you. And that's what he's basing all of this on, that, God, you can do this. And so while he's praying, Jeremiah is showing us that God is able. And then if God is able, and that is a true statement, God is able. If God is able, then we know three truths. So let's look at them. The first truth is this, if God is able, and he is, he will keep his promises. If God is able, he will keep his promises. Look at verse 22. As Jeremiah is praying, 
He said, and you gave them this land which you swore to their forefathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey. That, that word swore in the, in, in the Hebrew Bible means a sacred oath. Jeremiah said, God, you gave a sacred promise, a sacred oath that you were going to deliver them into the promised land. Someone has said there's 8,810 promises in the Bible, and God made 7,487 of them, and God hasn't broken one. God cannot break a promise. It's impossible. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, For as many as the promises of God are, in him they are yes. Therefore, through him also is our amen to the glory of God through us. God cannot make a promise. If God is able, and he is, every promise he makes, he will fulfill. A few weeks ago, I was reading an article of U.S. presidents and, and their promises that they broke. It was a long article. Here are some of the promises. Woodrow Wilson won re-election in 1916. He won with the slogan, he kept us out of the war. He entered the World War I the next year. Lyndon Johnson, 1964, said, We are not about to send American boys 9 or 10,000 miles away from home to do what Asian boys ought to do for themselves. During his presidency, we went to Vietnam. George H.W. Bush, in 1988, said, Read my lips, no new taxes, only to sign a bill raising taxes during his first and only term. Over and over, all, except only one person didn't break a promise. That's because he didn't make a promise. That's how you get away with it. But the article said this. He said, here are the most powerful men in the world, and they did not keep their promise because they did not either have the power nor the foresight to realize they couldn't keep it. God is not like that. God has the power and God has the foresight to keep his promises. The book of Numbers, chapter 23, verse 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of a man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? In other words, when God makes a promise, he can do it because he is able. God can back up every promise of Scripture. And that is why Jeremiah bought the land because he knew God was going to fulfill his promise. The promise was, remember what the promise was, that they were going to be taken into captivity in Babylon, and then 70 years later, they were coming back. Now, Jeremiah wouldn't be a part of that group, but Jeremiah knew the people of Israel would come back, that God had made a promise. Yes, you're going to be in captivity. The next generation will come back. And Jeremiah had bought this land as a symbol of that promise. You know how Jeremiah could do this? You go back and read this chapter, and you'll see how many times God says two words, I will. I will. Verse 37, I will gather them out of the country. Verse 37, I will bring them back to this place. Verse 37, I will cause them to dwell, I will cause them to dwell safely. Verse 38, I will be their God. Verse 39, I will give them one heart. Over and over and over, he kept saying, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. You see, when God makes a promise, his honor is at stake. He cannot break a promise or he loses who he is. If God is able, and he is, he'll fulfill his promise. Second, if God is able, and he is, he can answer our prayers. If God is able, he can answer our prayers. Look at verse 21. 
Jeremiah, as he's praying, he said, You brought your people to Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders and with strong hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terror. Jeremiah is saying, Lord, I remember what you did. But do you remember why he did this? The Bible said they've been praying for hundreds of years. Exodus chapter 2. That they prayed. So God heard their groanings and God remembered his covenant with Abraham. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. God answered their prayer. I mean, it's an amazing prayer. God took this nation, Israel, a nation of slaves who had no weapons, who had no leader, that had no money, that had no power. And they were facing the most powerful nation on earth at that time. There is no way they could win. There is no way they could get out. But God answered their prayers. And because of their prayers, God rose up Moses. And because of their prayers, God brought the plagues. And because of their prayers, God parted the Red Sea. Because of their prayers, God destroyed the Egyptian army. Because of their prayers, God led them into the promised land. Later, later we're going to see that verse in chapter 33, verse 3. Call on me and I will answer you and show you the mighty things which you do not know. If God is able... He can answer our prayers. Now, we understand we must pray in the will of God. But when we pray in the will of God, God can answer any prayer. I've said this before. The most powerful uh, power on earth, the greatest power on earth is not nuclear power. It's not financial power. It's not political power. The greatest power on earth is prayer power. Prayer can do anything that God can do, and God will fulfill it. Third, if God is able, and he is, then he can help us with our problems. If God is able, then he can help us with our problems. And that's how Jeremiah started in verse 17. He said, O Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arms. Nothing is too difficult for you. By the way, do you know where he got that phrase, nothing is too difficult for you? When God was talking to Abraham. Genesis chapter 18, verse 14, God asked Abraham, is anything too hard for the Lord? Jeremiah remembered Abraham and said, God, there is nothing too difficult for you. You can help our problems. In verse 27, God says it again. He said, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Again, he's referring back to Abraham. When he told Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great nation, and then decades pass, and now all of a sudden, they're in their 50s and their 60s and their 70s and their 80s, and they're going, Lord, where are you? This problem is impossible. But if God is able, he can help us with our problems. In 1800 B.C., God said to Abraham and Sarah, nothing is impossible. In 589, God says to Jeremiah, nothing's impossible. I'm here today to tell you in 2022, nothing's impossible to God. And we need to hold that in our minds. And, and if you go back and look at the prayer, this is what Jeremiah does. Jeremiah says, I, I can base this, verse 17, because of creation. Look at 17. 
You have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arms. Nothing is too difficult for you. Jeremiah says, you know, I look at creation. The Bible says, Genesis 1-1, the greatest verse of the power of God. He said, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. The word is bara in Hebrew. And out of nothing, God created everything. That is the power of God. No one else has that power. You and I do not have the power. We can create, but we have to take something to use. God, by a word, can create universes. God, with a word, can create all life. God, with a word, can change everything. And Jeremiah says, because of that, God, because of your power, I can look at creation. I know you can help with any problem. Listen. I don't know what your problem is today. I know we all have a problem. You know, it's just the way it is. You're either facing a problem, getting out of a problem, or going into a problem. It's just the way life is. But I know this. Nothing is too hard for God. But our problem is we limit God. And we need to stop limiting God and quit telling God he can't do something and start trusting God that he can do something. In the 1930s, there was a graduate student at Berkeley named George Danzig. He came to class late one day, math class, and there was a formula on the board, and, and he wrote it down thinking it was a homework assignment, and it turned out to be the most difficult homework assignment he'd ever worked on. In fact, he couldn't solve it for the next day. He, he worked on it an entire week, and he turned it in late. That night, he heard a knock on his door, and there was his mathematics professor standing there and said, George, you solved the problems. And George said, yeah, I know it was a homework assignment. I'm sorry I didn't get in on time. It was hard. And the professor said, no, that wasn't your homework assignment. You came in late. Those were the two of the most famous and solvable problems in mathematics. The world leading mathematics, mathematicians have been trying for years to solve those problems, and you solved it in a few days. By the way, Danzig later became a professor at Stanford University. He said this, if someone had told me that there were two famous unsolved problems, I wouldn't have even tried. But he solved two unsolvable problems because he didn't know it couldn't be done. Well, as believers in God, when we serve a God who is able, we should not look at a problem or an issue and think, well, this can't be done. We are to look at every issue and every problem with understanding, God, you can do something. It may not, may not be what we think. It may not be the way, way we would have done it. But every problem we face, God is able to do something. By the way, our, you know what our biggest problem is? Paul Chitwood, the president of the International Mission Board, said a few weeks ago, our biggest problem in the world is lostness. You look at all the problems in the world, lostness is still the biggest problem. And God solved that one by sending his son, Jesus Christ. We have a sin problem. We have a, a problem that we can't stand before God. And God sent Jesus, his son, who lived a perfect life, who went to a cross and died a sacrificial death for you and for me. And on that cross 2,000 years ago, God took all the sins of the world, past, present, and future, and placed it on Jesus, and he paid the price. Because we live in a moral universe, someone had to pay the price. And Jesus did. And he died. And they buried him. And on the third day, he came out of the grave. And he's in heaven, and one day he shall return. God solved our problem of lostness. And he offers to us a free gift by accepting Christ as our Lord. By admitting that we are sinners, saying, God, I can't save myself. I have messed up. I continue to mess up. God, I need help. 
And Lord, I believe, I do believe that Jesus was your son. I do believe he is your son. I believe he died on the cross for my sins. I do believe he was buried on the third day he arose. And Lord, I do confess. I, I agree with you. I give you everything I have, and I accept your gift. And that's how he solves our problem. Our biggest problem is lostness. If you're here this morning, you're watching online, if that's your problem today, if you've never given your life to Christ, that is your biggest problem. You can change it today. Those of you online, if you'd like to give your life to Christ, just text the word today at 270-398-5005, and a minister will call you today and talk to you about your decision. For those who are here, in a few moments we're going to be singing a song and the ministers will be at the front. Just come to the front, talk to one of the ministers and say, I need to give my life to Christ today. Or maybe your decision to join this church, or maybe your decision is to come up for a prayer. Whatever decision it may be, if God is leading you, you need to do it. Or at the end of the service, come to the Connection Center. There'll be some ministers there. You can talk to them. But whatever God is laying on your heart, you need to do it. Jeremiah, in prison, said, God, I'm going to follow you, even though it makes no sense to the world. I'm going to buy some property that I will never see and never use because you told me to do it. Will you have that same kind of faith? Would you stand and bow your heads? Our Father in heaven, all of us have issues and all of us have problems. For some, it may be financial. For some, it may be physical. Father, for some, it's emotional or relational. But Father, you're able to help us. And Father, forgive us when we tell you how to answer the prayer. Father, let us just come into your presence and ask you to let you answer it because you're able. But Father, today the most important issue is the spiritual issue, the issue of lostness. Do we know where we will spend eternity? Do we know where we will spend eternity when we die? Father, that, an that question can be answered today. And so Father, in the next few moments, speak to us. Father, for that person who needs to text that number or that person who needs to come to the front and talk to me or one of the ministers, Father, let them not think about what their friends might think or their parents or their children or their friends. Father, let them only care what you think. Or Father, you may be working in someone's life this morning and they know what they need to do, but they're afraid. Father, you made it very clear what they need to do, but they're afraid. Let them hold on to your promises, Father. Let them hold on to you, the God who is able Father, speak to us, move us, and help us. We pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.